Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. And today we have rock star, Cyber Matt Lee, YouTuber, CISSP, former MSP, master Swiss Army knife of cybersecurity, and now Senior Director of Technology and Security at PAX 8, also known as a really good friend of mine, <laughs> someone who I have a tremendous <laughs> amount of respect for his technical uh, ability, cybersecurity instincts, and just darn good judgment. Uh, we wanted to get together and share with the overall community here some paradigm-busting concept uh, just let's put a rocket ship underneath both of us, which is never a hard thing to do. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I, you know, Felicia, I got to say, I don't know that I have the 50 bucks per word you told me my intro was going to cost me. Good God. We're going to have to work that out in credit, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you deserve a good intro. And that was just so you know, that was just from the top of my head. I didn't even practice that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you... You uh, only one point of clarification because I wouldn't be the OCD robot that I am if I didn't is that I'm the senior director of security and compliance and general all around awesome person, as you stated earlier. But uh, no, I tease <laughs> um, <laughs> at that backseat. Okay. But you and I first met, what, uh, you know, two and a half years ago in Puerto Rico, I think. And um, and I, I like to share a kind of a, a, a thing. And, you know, you were you were you were espousing on some of the actual finer points of of what we were talking about in our agreements versus what we were actually delivering. And I shook my head and said, Oh, that, that loud mouse, she's, she's not right. Now I totally agree. You're hundred percent correct. So um, I, I just was not shown the air of my ways for a little bit longer than, than when you understood the situation. <laughs> well, you know, I think this is w one of the wonderful positive outcomes of having uh, open heart, open mind, open dialogue I really appreciate okay. being able to interface with other cybersecurity experts who understand that contextually uh, what we do is an art form. It's wizardry. It's, it's not yes. a situation where there is one right answer in all contexts. And, and that's why I see such value in the masters of integration, which is, you know, a lot of what we do. Yeah. You know, you make a good point. And I like to, I've been on this kick where I'm trying to help people understand it that aren't us, right. That aren't thinking uh, like in us, you know, general consumers and, you know, it, technicians even. And so what I say is like, you talk about it as wizardry and no right answer. There's no right way to run a football play. You can't play with nine players though. Right. right? Are... I think you start getting into some of these things where that's, uh Oh, am I losing you again? Okay. Can't no. cut my hand over the left side of the phone since I'm, <laughs> Go ahead. So, I mean, but to your point, there are requirements, there are boundaries. And I think a lot of that, this is going to yep. be fun because we'll transition into uh, a kind of one of our first topics here is something that I've been very passionate about for years and years and years, which is actually doing patch management effectively. And I just had this come up in the last week here where I was talking to uh, a PC technician at a client and I was telling him, look, we were just in a meeting with your insurance company and the insurance company says, you have to patch your systems. And I said to him, you were Thanks. in that meeting where I explained to the insurance company that one of our requirements as myself, as an information security officer is to translate what the insurance company says 
to being what they actually intended. And the intent here is why we install patches is to reduce vulnerabilities. So, So it's not just about patching. It's BIOS. It's firmware drivers. Oh, I, I think it's, that's the point. I, I, you know, I like to call it when you zoom in, right? The challenge you run into is like, if you're, if you, um, I, I talk about this when I'm do, teaching my CIS class, right? And, and the CIS class says, you know, establish a policy where you're patching. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of those statements where you can pencil whip the shit out of this and not achieve any security, right? Yes. Because if you don't zoom the hell in and start yeah. thinking about, is my TPM's firmware up to date? Did my motherboard yes. get up to date? Because yes. those are all parts of what I'm going to attack, right? Like that's that, that and so I, I think the challenge is, and this is what I love about iterative cybersecurity policy, um, is that you have uh, you have you have the ability to look at what you're doing today and see if it's good enough, and zoom in and iterate and get better and find that you're not patching this, or even right. worst case, maybe you find out that you're that you're uh, you're still susceptible to like Spectre or meltdown at the CPU level because you're still fighting it. Your VMware clusters definitely are, right? I don't know if they've ever solved that challenge uh, for, for those hosts fully. Uh, right. But, well, you know. right. So, so to me, we have to start with the right definitions to begin with. And patch management, okay, there, I don't- you, It should you, be vulnerability you, management. It should yeah, not you, be patch Right. So, you know, like you give me the Avanti catalog- you know, great, I've got the Avanti catalog, I do third-party patching, but that does not alleviate the necessity to inventory the machines, look for old junk, get rid of it. And then this is where this leads into this whole issue of, oh my gosh, we have so much technical debt from these critical business line applications that we can't get rid of yet because we're still dealing with business critical apps who are based upon .NET 2.0, .NET 3.0, some ancient version of Visual C++. And and like the frustration I have, and I, I want your input in this, is how do we as an industry pressure the software vendors and i almost feel like this has got to come from cisa but you know i want your opinion on this how do we put the pressure on these software vendors like okay i'm just going to pick on trimble here you know trimble makes a product called tmw they have a they they have a they have a product called total mail the code base for it hasn't been updated since 2010 i mean we could pick on kaseya vsa too here right but there yeah. not not myself legally but but uh yeah <laughs> but but like it's this whole concept of you know they're getting tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. per month in terms of fees for software maintenance at what point in time yep. are these software vendors going to say uh we need to eliminate our software's dependency on old deprecated unpatchable yeah junk that is in effect creating a vulnerability and a compliance issue on all of our customer systems. Because for the last five years, actually for probably longer than that, I've been fighting with these software vendors to close this gap and they just don't care what I have to say. So I feel like this has got to come from CISA. Yeah. I mean, I think the most immediate answer would be that, you know, you pull my string for a minute. So let let me, let me dig into this because I want to take it from a higher level. Because I agree, you, this is a big challenge, but we're kind of in this same pattern we always go through when new technologies exist. If you look at the industrial revolution, 
right? Or even the birth of cars. The first car was built in late 1860s. The first seatbelt was in the late 1960s, right? And you start thinking about the fact that when we, we have these explosions into iterative fast technologies, we have a wild west where there's no regulation, there's no barrier to entry. There's nothing that says I know a single thing about what I'm talking about if it weren't for my certifications. My hairdresser must go to a nine-week class before each year. He can touch my damn beard, but I've got to do nothing but put a sticky note on the outside of my door in order to say I'm an MSP or a software vendor or an ISP or a producer. or right. And so you get into this situation where um, I, I feel like we're just seeing the same things pat repeat. If you think of what happened in the Industrial Revolution, and I'll just zoom in on one case, just like you zoomed in on Trimble, you had a bunch of women in a sewing room. Why? Well, because steam boilers allowed you to run a belt that ran all of the sewing machines at once. If you put them in parallel, you were able to drive enough horsepower to sew much, 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 much faster. And in addition to that, they wanted to squeak every bit of profit out. And so uh, much like our software vendors that we talk about, they locked the doors so they couldn't take a break. And guess what happened? The they boiler blew fire up and, died. and hundreds of women burned to death. Yep. And ever since then, we now have doors that exit when you push a bar on them. Right. And so the point is, is that we, we, we're, we're heading to a point where we're going to solve this. One of my fears, though, is just like the Industrial Revolution and how quickly it went from steam, mach steam machine to better steam machine to gasoline, internal combustion to electric. And then that got shelved because battery life. But when you start thinking about these things, you know, we, we are moving fast enough that the people that have to regulate it don't have the ability to regulate it. And so, you know, CIS under DHS, as it exists today, you know, Krebs quoted that it'd be better if they moved direct. And then they would not have a partisan aspect of that to some extent. They'd be able to, to function and set guidelines for these software vendors to say, listen, you cannot have technical debt beyond X. Like set a baseline. And the challenge is the way I would solve it today. If I couldn't change CISA, if I couldn't make them do it, which who knows, one of these days, maybe I'll have an arm and a, and a leg there. But, you know, today I approached it with a man that came to me the other day at a conference yesterday in Milwaukee before I got to see your awesome rabbits. Um, but. Yesterday, Milwaukee, this gentleman came to me, he has a giant container, blow mold plastics manufacturer. Um, and he said, you know, Matt, he says, Matt, I like what you're talking about, about, about getting rid of these technical debts and moving to SaaS clouds that are, you know, that are, that are, that are protectable compared to my on-prem software. So we're even talking for pre-SaaS, let alone what the SaaS vendors are screwing you with. <clears throat> but that being, in, you know, in that conversation, my answer was, if I'm your CISO, and if I'm an advisor, I'm talking about your five-year journey. I would drive rapidly towards the ability to move from that ERP or move from that software or change because I don't think they can solve it. You know, you talk about it as they don't want to. This gets a little more nuanced, uh, I feel, in the sense that I think these vendors now have practices where they have to still meet equity deals. They have to still meet those profitability things. And they've done it at the expense of an immature consumer. And, and now those profit models don't necessarily line up. And unless they can bring in enough capital to rewrite, they're oftentimes just moving into a freaking terminal server in the cloud or, right, like they're not right. actually doing the work to take right. it and carve it. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've, I've meandered a smidge. But the, the conversation is, I think we're on a path where we have to advise people to move and leave and reimagine and find new line of business software that starts today. I, I think that... Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think there is still that use case that unfortunately in certain industries, there is no effective alternative. Like, I mean, I could, look at, the, I, I could look at the chiropractic industry as an example. Every single piece of software that is a practice management software for the chiropractic industry is just trash. 
And that's the most polite term I have for it. It's just trash. You know, so if you're a chiropractor, what are you supposed to do? Responsibility model. Yeah. Well, so what I would advise first is find SaaS options that suck ass. And here's why. That way you have a shared responsibility model in a sense. And at least it's on their systems, not your system. Like, I, I know that's tongue, but it's my swear to God's trap. Like, you have my application on my system and it's mine. Different conversation. If I'm paying you as a full-blown ass bender and I'm reaching into it in HTTP, that's on you. Or even if I have to RDP to it and they don't protect it adequately. Like, I'm at least in some degrees transferring some and letting them own the risk that will destroy them. And I will say one of the nice things about modern DevSecOps practices is that when you start seeing these shifts and when consumers start caring, you can get funding really quick and you can build software that's good and sustainable really quick in a SaaS first model. And I think what that should be is a wake up call. And I like to ask this close your eyes and dreams theory, right? <clears throat> If you close your eyes and dream today, after our conversation about Intune and AADJ, and if you just trusted me on that without yet seeing the, the outcome, you can imagine a world where my new business never buys a server. I don't buy software. I only buy SaaS apps. I extend I am into those SaaS apps through my identity provider. I set my own conditional access policies for all of them. And holy hell, we're heading towards a better zero trust world. And I, I think that those type of things allow me to say that if I'm a competitor to somebody with a boat anchor around their neck of infrastructure and a boat anchor around the neck of old software choices, when new practices, new software does exist for some of the industries, and I'd probably even argue a bell curve of the industries have started to have new options. They're just too expensive or too much work to change or great. You'll drown with that anchor around your neck like you deserve to. And, and the challenge is, yes, they didn't choose to be there, but if they don't take the olive branch and understand that this is a business, and just like when you find out that you can't get the same clay content you need for your bricks and you have to move to a different supplier, they have to fucking change your software. And you have to understand that that is also a technology just like your dump truck, right? And, and I think people don't think like that. I know you do because I've both seen your dump trucks and your technologies. <laughs> so, right. I mean, your, your tractors were, were overkill, my friend. So, uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's a matter of efficiency. If you got to cut seven acres of grass, man, you got to get that done quickly because my time is valuable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so um, I, I feel like I agree with what you've said. I, I still feel like there are certain things, there is that use case that says there are some things that are only going to really be cost effective if we can run them in our, in our own data centers, but we still need to be using those as a, a baseline set of requirements that we're using new yeah. tech you know, new tech appropriately secured in our data centers. And we should only ever be using tech yeah. that we have the capability to secure effectively. And, and I feel like there's also sometimes people that say, like, hey, let's go to Kubernetes when they don't understand anything about Kubernetes. Yeah. So they have no idea how to assess the risk or anything. So um, that's, that goes yeah. back to that nuance we talked about earlier. Um, so there's, well, and, and I, think, I would actually counter you on, the, on a bit of, well, and what's, what's really funny is I would actually fall a little bit philosophically akin on the other side of that, in that I feel like for the bell curve of our audience, right, for if we're talking to SMB supporting, you know, predominantly mid-sized market supporting MSPs and or companies, then, you know, it's this argument that I make about software developers, right? If I write software and it's running on server 2008, 2008 R2, 12, 12R2, 16, 19, 20, or it's running on this VMware, this hardware, this speed, this performance, this networking, this subnetting, this VLANing, this access control, this, 
you start getting into this conversation where I literally can never, ever make bug-free software. I never, ever can have a constant integration, constant development pipeline. I never, ever can get away from somewhat of this monolithic delivery of an application after I re-render the application model, maybe with some .NET extensibility stuff and kind of those things a little bit. But true, 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 true SaaS apps mean that I, as a vendor, can iterate on the same hardware, same outcomes, same stuff, same things. Everything I know is the same variables. And I don't have to plan for an unlimited set of variables in my testing, which allows me to have more of a, a CI/CD pipeline for delivery of that code, as opposed to, you know, kind of this um, package and deliver and hope everybody doesn't blow up and support costs go to 70% instead of 20%. And, you know, so you have this thing where I don't think that we should do those things, but that's just my opinion. And again, back to your point, there are nuances to this and there's arguments for a lot of different ways, but well, I think, yeah, I think that's I, where I, we're heading. I, I think we've got some, there's some political landscape issues and I'll give you a couple examples that I, I personally that's think true. I agree are with that. Yes. They, there, yes, these I are, agree with those arguments. you know, a very significant business decision-making driver driving factors. I'll give you a great example. So uh, Campmore, there was a, a business article I read where Campmore had spent like two and a half million dollars getting onto Salesforce and their Salesforce fees were a million dollars a year. You know, say so they'd done this huge investment into SaaS. And then, you know, one yeah. day <clears throat> Camp, Campmore just decides that says, well, uh, I'm sorry, Salesforce says to Campmore, you can't utilize our service anymore if you're going to continue to sell this legal. It was a legal product, but Salesforce has their own yeah. little political agenda and they didn't like the product that yeah. Campmore was selling. You know, so, so uh, are you willing to take that kind of a business risk to the point where an external third yeah. party has the ability to turn off your business if you're using... Yeah. They're SaaS. I, I think we need some regulation. Well, I think that's some of the conversation, right? I think we have to make this where does Ford not sell me a car if I'm a bigot? No, they sell me a car. I think some of the conversations are that we we have this God mode capability today that so don't get me started on that one. But I do believe there needs to be some 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 requirements because you do have vendor lock-in risk, right? Describe right? I, I, the fancy CISFP, so you know, but uh, that you do have this vendor lock-in risk, and that is a real challenge. And that vendor lock-in risk could also mean vendor execution, right? Because if they kill you, you know, look back to a couple of the ones we, you know, were very public. I, I, won't get into it, I stay, I stay non-political in conversations, but you know, I, I would say that yes, there's some serious risks. I think there's if you took that and flipped it on its head, the reason why I'm such an advocate of making it to where if you make software, you have to sell it to everybody. You can't discriminate. You can't take right. Is that? <clears throat> I mean, obviously not directors and you know people right. that are not nation state affiliated right. inside the borders of the United States. My argument would be that I can't build a software that's supportable. I can't make a defensible action to build that software as an industry unless I am really, really dedicated and understanding what I'm doing and I have policies and rails. And I think that's kind of the challenge too is you find the death the other side of that fence. Right now, I'm not going to go with these vendors. I'm going to build it myself. I'm going to use free and open source software. There were like 12 NPM packages that have shown up as malicious in the last two weeks, right? Like we're starting to see that the mini eyes theory doesn't work either. And so my challenge is I think we have to regulate the, the discrimination away uh, in some ways. And I think that should be, you know, other than breaking the law, I think you said it right. It's legal. Then, you know, if it's not illegal, you can't discriminate. Um, and I yeah. think there's philosophical arguments and this is our rights in the United States. Great. In the same way, you wouldn't want to be told you can't go to public schools because you're black. 
Right. And so I, 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 I mean, I, I hate saying, you know, and maybe beliefs are a little different than, than color. I don't mean to take race into that, but the conversation is that I feel like we have protections in so many er- other areas of how we do business. Um, we, we have some challenges around this vendor lock-in. Now, I would also argue that you're going to see enough players exist. I think some of the monopolistic practices of the in- individual players today get a little different when you start imagining a world that is all SaaS. And I am consuming line of business applications in a way as a general business person, somebody that's not likely to get told that, right? That is going to live in that way. <clears throat> somebody that's just an attorney or, 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 you know, CPAs and they're not making some public statements that people see in that way. But the, the, the point I was trying to make was that if you imagine that world, then the entrenched people that make device management, identity management, it's all tied to the, the, the need for the legacy shit. If I'm just doing SAML protocols and HTML5, I can do it on literally anything, which means you could see a world where new device players come in the world or new adaptations of Linux kernels or things that you just need to give you a browser that give you huge control. And right. Um, and so you don't see the entrenched Microsoft's being the only player in the, in the world or or even a Salesforce. You, you could have 17 options there and portable data formats so that at least if they fire, you, you can take your data out in a way that's right. So you can see really interesting things developing that change our world. And, and remember, or maybe you and I've never really talked about this. My job is to be the forward thinking three-year, five-year vision person. And, and I'm, I'm always, it seems, right about the grand patterns. I'm never right about the time, which means I can't capitalize on it. I'm just stupid. But no, I, you know, my world might be 10 years out is my point, not three. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, but yeah. One, one of the other things that concerns me in this particular topic is I don't consider the government any of the governments to be a trustworthy counterparty. And so for, for the data but that it's what you we got, are, unfortunately. well, but there, but that is also a key critical business driver for, in a lot of contexts, they trust their fourth amendment protections over the servers that are in the data centers and the facilities that they own and the data that's there, they have more yeah. control over. And the government will actually have to go get a warrant to go get that data, as opposed to if it is SAS, there's probably a back door that exists there. And I think that's a concern that people have to evaluate. And I mean, you made a point that that isn't necessarily a risk that a lot of people are going to think is applicable to them. But that is a factor. I know that certainly does go through through my mind. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, let's transition. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, especially when you think you're good. Well, let's transition to this whole topic of uh, additional levels of technical debt. And I feel like part of that uh, additional level of technical debt is that we're still not utilizing the right definitions for things in the industry. A lot of times what I spend my time doing, especially with the podcast here, is to educate other IT professionals in the industry, like, stop using the term patch management. I mean, you made the point earlier that the terminology that should be utilized is really vulnerability management. We have to expand the paradigm because there's a gap between what, I mean, if you just simply look at it from a cybersecurity risk assessment questionnaire sort of thing, you know, you go look at sure. what, what are we doing for ransomware prevention? Yep. You know, you're looking at, at the, the, the CIS controls, whatever. So it's a matter of looking at, yeah, so the thing says you need to do this, but what's really the intent that is there? I mean, especially on the insurance side, the, 
the terminology, the verbiage that the insurance companies are utilizing is not the most helpful. You know, we have to actually get yeah. to the nugget of what was the intent in order to be able to, yeah. uh, you know, so part of that vulnerability management is looking at, do we have old deprecated junk on the machines? What's our technical debt yep. for that? You know, do we then say, oh my gosh, well, we can't be running this old crud on the workstations anymore. We have to now take that into, you know, an RDS totally isolated scenario. You know, I, so I think this is a lot of the paradigm that a lot of organizations are really struggling with is not just technical debt in terms of their business line apps, but it's technical debt of their paradigms, their decision-making right. pro- practices, their, their procurement policies. True. Yeah, and, and I'll actually, I'll, I kind of want to touch on two parts of that technical debt, because if you think of patch management and, and, and think of it as far as what we would have originally thought of it as, I'm going to look at the system and the installed applications that, are, that were used, and I'm going to update them to their latest versions and whatever patch is available. But it also doesn't tie into that doesn't have a new patch and you need to get rid of it. It is vulnerable, right? And so that's part of it. And then when you take it a step further, you get into a situation where, oh my God, and I won't name the name, but two or three of our line of business software companies that you and I consume every day, I've found what putty 0.67 in one of their binaries. I found Chrome 56 being actively used for a login process that goes to a single sign-on. 56, we're 90, maybe I'm past that now, but 56, it has, when I looked it up at that time and I sent this to them, 3,900 known vulnerabilities above a five. Like Chrome 79 was in another one. And so you have this challenge where even embedded in these applications that you're running that you have no control over. And when I bring it up to them, they go, well, yeah, but we have to have that because that works for our QuickBooks integration. Or, or we have to have that because that's part, right? Like it literally, literally, literally takes it, makes it even more valuable because now it's what's handling the money. So that blows my mind. It's often what, what I think the, that I want to touch on today. And I, I love you vendors, but you need to either die or you need to fix these things. And I, and I, I think that the challenge, and I, I did a big talk about vulnerability disclosure man, uh, programs for vendors is that if you have X number of sprints and for the ELI five in the crowd on this, you know, sprints are your dev cycles that you have. If you have X number of, of sprints and those are needed to develop your software and move forward, and the first 19 they're put in that you have available for are all new features that have revenue tags tied to them that say, this is going to drive our revenue goals because these five partners said they'll buy it. These 22 people on my prospect list said they're going to, right? They tie revenue targets to them. But then you come in with a vulnerability disclosure program. Even when you do one that's good and somebody says, hey, I found Chrome 79, they go, we can't fix that. What do you mean we can't fix that? Well, I can't get any traction. I had this guy that was at a major, major, major weapons manufacturer that I was talking to on LinkedIn and I said this kind of espousement and he basically said, yeah, I have 564 things in backlog right now on my security from my bug bounty program. Why? Well, we can't get them in slipstreamed in to get work. Um, we can't get them slipstreamed in to get work to, I think I lost you. We can't get them slipstreamed in to get it, it work done on it. Right. And so the, the challenge was, is that they, they know they need to fix it, but what they need to do is either tie revenue loss to those vulnerabilities right? Where this is how much it'll be lose. And now you can make a adequate decision on what revenue line items more likely to happen, right? The sale to these five prospects or the, right? But they don't have that solved. And so what you end up finding is that not just that they don't care, like it's not as, as that, it's more nuanced than that. They're just set up for failure. 
right? The other option is to have a dedicated sprint team. That, and then you get into the challenge of if they have a monolithic app, and I just use that as an over um, rounding to say it starts at the top, it runs to the bottom of the code, right? As opposed to an app that references outside apps, right? So a tiny little app that's maybe a framework that then references all the different microservice applications that are running, right? So all separate apps. Well, then you can have a sprint team fix microservice number 704.2 and roll that out in the middle of the day. They test it in a test group. They, they know what it's going to do. They make sure it functions in the, in the, in the other code platform. And then, they, and then they roll it out, right? And so with a monolithic app, you can't do that. You have to have a publishing date. You have to have that I'm going to change all this. I have to check all of the recursions. I have to check all other dependencies on the rest of the application. Like that's not the way this works with a microservice. And so these people are set up for failure and sometimes you have to be reborn. And sometimes companies that have not invested in their infrastructure die. Sears Roebuck company got fucked because they made those choices. And, and this is what we're going to see happen in our software industry. And we should, they should not exist. They are the risk to our humans. You, yeah, I mean, you're articulating exceptionally well that this is, and it has to be a massive paradigm shift because there is no real yeah. effective possible way for them to just simply fix their apps. I mean, I remember back in 2010, we were dealing with trying to get these old uh, healthcare practice management applications just to function on a modern operating system with UAC in place where you were not yeah. going yeah. Turn to on have. SMB1. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, oh. just literally just yesterday, we ended up wrapping up uh, a small, hot, critical project for a client where a massively critical business function wasn't working because one of the Linux servers from a vendor still had not been upgraded to support SMB 2 and 3. And it's like, hello, this stuff was deprecated right? as of 2016. So it's like... At what, so yeah. this is the part that I struggle with is it's like, we know what needs to be done, but I feel so powerless with these software vendors yeah. to get them to do things proactively. And, and so I really appreciate your you know perspective on these things because, you know, you're articulating that we in the IT services industry need to be those thought leaders where we're articulating effectively that there is not a mechanism that just is not a mechanism to get these software vendors to fix their stuff. And, and the software vendors yeah. don't have the mechanism to fix it. We have to find different solutions. You know, it's horrifying and great at the same time. And I, I didn't, you know, I don't have my bag from United, so I'm stupid salty. So I'll just be honest that I'm really a little bit on the negative side today. And this is coming from that color. Um, but I would say that their death is imminent. If you think about what it takes to destroy a company with that many vulnerabilities, it's script kitty. It would take me moments to break out SMB Walker, if I remember, and, and use that to just destroy that environment as soon as I got a foothold. And my point is, is that sometimes death needs to happen, right? And I hate saying that, but if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, why do we have door handles that exit? Because 100 or 200 women lost their lives. And it's horrible. But millions didn't. And I don't mean that to say it's a pragmatic argument for killing humans, but I would say that, you know, when we talk about these companies, these software companies, you let two or three major private equity firms lose entire companies to threat actors. I promise you, this gets done. I think the challenge is the purse strings and the hearts and the minds. And if I was to make any advocation, is it the C-suite? 
It is in the C-suite and the board right now to fix this. Your death is your choice. You're either going to die at the hands of threat actors in an escalating war that we cannot win, or you are going to start having practices that understand this is a football game. And I'll go into my stupid analogy again. My, my argument is this. My job when I'm playing football as a coach, as a defensive coach, if I stepped on that field and placed nine people out on that field to play, I have no defensibility in my actions, right? I, I failed. There's 11 required to play football. If I then have 11 out as a coach and I have a guard that's getting beat and he's getting beat every time and the corner's having to cover and the safety's having to cover and I've got this giant gap, I have this huge running lane, but I have these challenges. I, if I don't replace that guard or help that guard or, or teach him how to take a step back and kneel down so he doesn't get shoved completely out of the hole. If I don't do those things, I don't have defensibility, right? I'm not telling MSPs they have to be defending their clients' networks. I, I think that's inherent in its table stakes. It's how they defensively choose to defend their clients' networks and what, what they're doing to help arg augment that. But as a coach, you'd also never walk out as a defensive coach and say, I'm never going to let a single yard happen. That would be preposterous, right? I'm going to allow less than 10 yards. I'm going to make enough adjustments that I hopefully don't do more than a few sets of losing 10 yards. And then I'm going to repeat and I'm going to hope my offense can take back some ground. And I think the challenge is if you're already fighting with all these monolithic, massive, massive, massive gaps. And if you don't understand this, go to tryhackme.com, use it and understand how easy the threat actor side of this is. You'll understand those guys die. And, and I think the point is if enough of them die, PE reacts. We lose some of this to the American populace, though. These people that have exited, and I won't name names, that have massive technical debt, or that aren't even in our space, that have massive technical debt. I had someone tell me, a lot of shitty software makes a lot of money. Yeah, but it also kills a lot of people. It also destroys a lot of families. It also destroys a lot of, of our world. And you know, my personal mission is that my children, 18 and 17, if I don't do what I can to change our world from a cybersecurity perspective over the next five years, the next 40 will not be the same we are used to and will not have the same liberties and will not have the same things that we treat as being, I'm happy, Felicia, I live happy, right? And I want my kids to be able to experience that same thing. And I don't think they will at this current rate. And it's from tech debt and, and a very good adversary. A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like you asked Bugsy when they said, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is, right? I mean, that's why they attack us. They're taking our money, right? I mean, uh, well, that was, uh, I'm going to log that under one of Matt's epic rants. <laughs> <laughs> I get a few of them every now and again. I, I am totally uh, going to log that I, as one uh, of the, the hot takes right there. Awesome. Well, I got to go. I got back to back. So I'm hopefully going to clean up. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate for your you as always, my friend. And uh, I've. I think we just uh, did another spectacular service for humanity here. And hopefully the podcast listeners will agree. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's do awesome. this again soon. Well, as always, I will see you in your rabbits later. Yep. All right. See you, girl. Bye.